Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things to think about and honestly rant about, Um, but we have with us a proper expert on all things pockets. The book is titled Pockets, an intimate history of how we keep things close. Um, It's just come out in 2023. And as the title suggests, um, this book does what it says. I mean, tells a history of pockets, but it's a lot more interesting than you think. It's maybe not so straightforward as one might assume. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast its author, Dr. Hannah Carlson. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. I'm very pleased to have you, but before we get into all things pockets, you can probably tell I'm excited. I would like you to ask, I would like to ask you to please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why did you decide to write a book about pockets? Sure. So I'm um, a senior lecturer in apparel design at the Rhode Island School of Design, Um, but I didn't arrive at the topic because of dress history necessarily. I arrived at it through literature. Um, I was convinced there's more to pockets than simply function, um, you know, especially especially because pockets just pop up everywhere. In, um, and they're often in literature used as a sort of quasi-extension of the person. You know, exploring the contents of someone's pockets is a sort of irresistible shorthand, a way to take a person's measure. Um, according to Shakespeare, Caesar enjoys outsized power. Because he care, and so he he enjoys such outsized power that he carries the moon in his pocket, and those sorts of tidbits, and they are tidbits, suggested to me that there was something to pursue. That pockets are more interesting than we think. I knew I had something because pockets are so they're intriguing and fun, and I um, was interested in this distinction between pockets and purses. The distinction seems small. Um, but the, pa- the fact that pockets are integral to our clothes and they're not a satellite accessory really turned out to be quite meaningful. So pockets became this way to explore um, privacy, you know, our reliance on tools, um, our sense of decorum and what it means to be cool and ideas about gender and power. You know, how is it that the material world supports the patriarchy? So there's a lot, a lot more than you think um, uh, in this little in this little container. And a whole bunch of things for us to get into for the interview. So thank you for that introduction. Um, I do have to ask kind of the obvious historian's question, but I am also sort of expecting the obvious historian's answer of it's actually kind of tricky to tell and it's not that simple. But I want us to make sure we're on the same page. So to what extent can we determine where and when pockets emerged? You are absolutely right. (laughs) Not very precisely. Um, But 
I think we have a few clues. We know they show up in wardrobe accounts. For example, Henry VIII of England, about 1540, you start to see pockets referred to. They show up in tailor's invoices also in the 16th century. But I don't think we're ever going to sort of locate a single individual who had that aha moment. Um, We just won't know. Um, And so, you know, I I think that's fine. Absolutely fine. (laughs) Well, and that gives us some idea of kind of when we're talking, what sorts of sources we have. So that that helps us um, in a foundational sense. I mean, oh, you know, we could also actually look at language, you know, mm-hmm. and say the word pocket actually means small bag. Literally, it's a borrowing of posh for French for bag, but in Anglo-Norman becomes poke and et, the diminutive, diminutive so small bag, literally. And early pockets are not necessarily stitched into clothes. And so, you know, the mystery becomes why, why, why did anyone do this? And, you know, for millennia, people have carried purses in some way or other, Um, you know, around the medieval period, men affix bags right to their waist, to the belt at the waist. Women also carry bags, but they're under the skirt, perhaps under the dress and sort of dangle from um, a belt around the waist. And so it's speculation on my part, but I think, um, you know, some tailor around mid 16th century, just as breeches get really big and they kind of look like, I don't know, bloomers or pumpkins, you know, they're so big that men are charged to charged with walking around and strutting in their breeches as big as barrels. I think I speculate that that girth, that size, you know, made some tailor say, oh, look, instead of sort of walking around with these big breeches and this big bag, let's just stuff it inside. Uh, let's just stuff it inside your your clothes. But I have no evidence for that. You know, nothing, nothing well, remains. Except it seems logical. So if we don't have a clear starting point, um, that's not a bad supposition. I'd love to stay in this early world of pockets for a moment um, because it is, I mean, in some ways, such a vivid image as well as quite interesting to think about what the sources are telling us. You talk about in the book some early regulations, and obviously you're not going to regulate a thing that doesn't exist, right? So the fact that they're there tells us that pockets are around. Regulations both in a legal sense and a social sense, what are these telling us, what are they saying about pockets? What what is this telling us about who's using pockets and for what? That the early regulations were some of my most surprising and really fun evidence I think when I when I found those I thought oh I'm I'm on to something here um uh and uh, so the legal let's do the legal regulations first um there was anxiety about early pockets and you see that I think it happens because of the co-emergence of pockets but also the wheel lock pistol in the early 16th century so the wheel lock pistol was this mechanism that reduced the sizes, the size of firearms to something that could be easily concealed. So the first handgun is actually called a pocket pistol or a pocket dag. And the, the fact that these pocket dags could be carried privily um, vexed all sorts of folks, including the monarchy. And so in 1579, Queen Elizabeth I enacts a regulation banning guns. Uh, She banned any gun that may be hid in a pocket or a place about a man's body to be hid or carried covertly. 
And, you know, James I also continued with these, these regulations. Um, the French were also worried about concealed firearms, but their approach was a little different, a little half-hearted. They said, well, let's make sure that the pocket can't be that large. You know, let's limit the pocket to less than a foot. And I think that's about the size that the, the pistols were. So here's evidence exactly that um, uh, the pockets were not just a nifty thing, but, but somewhat threatening private space. So that's one sphere. And I guess the second sphere is this just notion, this rising notion of privacy um, that, um, you know, pretty soon people can't quite imagine not having access to private space with them in public. I think that sort of mirrors the shift from, you know, the medieval to the early modern era, this notion that, you know, the bluster of the knight with his showy arms is out and the cunning of the courtier is in. So um, you see conduct books, early conduct books explaining um, that the thing to do in social situations is to consider the impression that you make on others. And you have to separate the things you do in private from those in public. And so all these early artifacts as well, pocket glass, pocket mirrors, pocket handkerchiefs, um, all these new artifacts of gentility are carried in this new space that you might you know, need to have on hand. So I think both work together Hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and are very, in a lot of ways, quite revealing to investigate. Um, when we're talking, though, about these early pockets and the regulations and the norms around them, we are, I, as I understand it, mostly talking about men, because both je- men and women had purses beforehand. You mentioned that earlier. But it seems like pockets replace the purses for men, not so much for women. Yeah. And it's not necessarily easy to explain why. I mean, there were some women did include pockets. Queen Elizabeth I had pockets stitched into some of her more casual gowns. But it seems as though um, for women, the tie on pocket was really just much beloved. So historians call it a tie on pocket. um, And that's a, you know, pocket a bag worn under the skirt. And I'm sorry, at this point, it's still a, still a purse. What I mean to say is I think that women just continue the medieval practice of wearing your purse underneath your skirt. It's useful. It's easy. Um, they're great. <laughs> and their women's clothing hadn't changed so dramatically as men's clothing had. Um, so I think, um, there's a sort of sense that as men embrace bifurcated dress, And as these places open up in this new sort of apparel, um, that it just became this uh, just became easy and convenient. Um, It certainly becomes less fashionable at a certain point to not have a bag. So according to Robert Greene, like in the 1590s, the purse becomes associated with out of date fashions. So only a plain country fellow in a homespun coat would wear a side pouch at his side. Um, so I think it, hard to say fashion and, um, and tradition has much to do with it, as does perhaps this notion that because the pocket pistol was this sort of sensational object to be carried in breeches, maybe, maybe that helped the, so sort of cement the association between menswear um, and pockets. You know, I'm not sure. Hmm. No, it's always difficult to trace that kind of thing. But I mean, it certainly becomes the case that, you know, if you, the, the, the purse worn under the skirt for women eventually sort of moves up and it's, 
it becomes, it's, it's carried tighter to the waist. Uh, and it's what's called a tie on pocket by the 17th, 18th century. Um, and you can read a lovely book by Barbara Berman and Ariane Fentineau, um, their book, The Pocket, A Hidden History of Women's Lives, tells the story of that um, by the 17th century was the tie on pocket. And, you know, women loved these artifacts. They were embroidered, given as gifts. They were really handy. They carried a lot, really capacious. Um, and so until women's fashions changed, changed in the 1800s, it's like, ah, we have what we need. Until they don't, but we're going to get there. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, getting, getting ahead of myself there. Um, the reasons you've just described kind of make a lot of sense as to why they'd be popular. As we know, sort of anything associated with the cool, shiny new toy tends to be a big motivator. Um, but there's also, as you said, tradition. So you talk about in the book that the adoption of pockets proceeds, quote, fitfully. Do you want to maybe tell us a bit about that? Yes, I do. I think um, what I meant there was that pockets don't begin as an artifact that is standardized. I mean, in the 17th and 18th century, with the rise of the suit, all clothes are still made by hand. And so there's really a lot of variation. Um, you could see, um, for example, status and the type of cloth and the cut of the coat. But you also people also noted the absence or presence of pockets. Um, some suits and coats didn't have pockets at all. And this is noted in runaway advertisements, um, pockets in, for example, 1767, an apprentice runs away from a Virginia courthouse. And the court official notes in that runaway advertisement that, that he wore a gray cloth coat without pockets or flaps. You know, he also had some stained leather breeches. So that notion that something as simple as a pocket might be, um, observable <laughs> suggests to me how really how it's really not at all necessarily um, standard. But eventually pockets do become standardized in the suit and that is really apparent by the 19th century. Um, you know they pockets grow and proliferate as menswear shifts from a craft to an industrialized product. So in the 1850s, all sorts of things um, are moving along to make sure that suits can be made in simple ways and basically mass produced. In the US, you could walk into Brooks Brothers, as I said, by the 1850s and almost buy a suit off the rack. Um, and you would expect to find pockets. There was a template for them. Um, they're part of doing business in menswear. Um, you know, so later on, like at the beginning of the 20th century, the critic Adolf Loos says the suit is the uniform of the self-reliant. But what I think I wanted to suggest by exploring some of this 17th and 18th century moment was that pockets weren't always standard and it was something that had to sort of happen, um, you know, over time. Yeah, no, they're so taken for granted now that investigating sort of to what extent that has always been the case is, I think, very helpful. Um, I'd love to ask you now about something you briefly mentioned at the beginning when you were kind of listing all the cool topics, or at least some of the cool topics that the book discusses, um, which is the idea of kind of what it means to be cool. Um, what attitudes do we associate with pockets? Uh, 
we, I think there's a mental image that a lot of us might have and you show in the book that if you kind of imagine someone stood up straight, um, leaning back a bit and they've got their hands in their pockets, that often reads sort of as like relaxed or casual. And we might honestly not think about it more than that. But you think and you show in the book, there's a lot of reasons we should think a bit more about that, what that pose and how it came to be. So can you walk us through that? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I think that was just so much fun. This notion that, um, you know, we carry a lot of stuff in our pockets, but really the most controversial thing we carry are our hands. Um, and what was really sort of, what really intrigued me, I think the most was that, you know, holding your hands in your pockets removes your hands from view. And really most gestures require that the hands be um, visible. I mean, in, in order to, when, as you're gesturing the way I am right now, but you can't see me, um, you would have, I'm emphasizing my meaning and what, and how I feel and what I think. And so the fact that when your hand is enclosed in cloth, that that would be equally expressive was just really fascinating to me. So I think there are two um, uh, sort of modes that regulate the hand. The first is etiquette and, and the second is oratory. And they both come into play in the ways that we think that we, that we read this gesture. So I, I, I traced discussion of first etiquette um, and by the 18th and 19th centuries, etiquette guides warn or try to warn men not to hold their hands in their pockets. It's rude to strut about with your hands in your pockets. And the reason, of course, is because your hands then are in trouser pockets. Um, you know, they're in and around erogenous zones, as the poet Harold Nemirov suggests. Trouser pockets locate to lust. Their proximity to the genital area has made the gesture seem rude because it's too suggestive of the body. And so that admonition, take your hands out of your pockets, you know, starts to appear, um, you know, by the 18th century and is repeated endlessly by mothers and educators and everyone hoping to, to raise genteel sons. Um, but of course, all sorts of people find that gesture attractive. And I look at imagery that suggests that it's really first French courtiers who find it attractive. They wanted to show that, you know, by breaking the rules of, um, by breaking rules of manners, um, that they could look fashionably nonchalant. Um, you know, fashion delights in mocking the pretensions of the day. And I think, you know, in a way, the attitude is sort of just a conflict between fashion and good manners. And in oratory, in contrast, um, there's something more psychological going on versus sexual. So um, there was this idea, since sort of Greek orators battled over it, that the hand enclosed, for example, in the toga suggested reserve. And that's different than having the hand gesturing sort of in the open air. Um, so that notion gets sort of discussed and is brought up again in the 18th century when you see all sorts of 18th century gentlemen holding their hands in their waistcoat pockets. I mean, waistcoats, you know, like Napoleon. And the idea that that was really gentlemanly um, is sort of starts to appear. Um, but 
from that sort of idea, I think we have the notion that um, removing your hand into clothing suggests not only reserve, but a kind of emotional inaccessibility. Um, you know, so if you see someone at the bar, they're back up against the wall with their hands in their pockets, you think, oh, what arrogance, you know, who is that? They're not even willing to engage. And that idea, um, I think we associate the hand contained with, um, you know, some sort of the idea that it reflects their emotional register, that their emotional inaccessibility and containment. So this is all a long way of saying that I think that the hands in pockets gesture oscillates between the sexual and psychological registers. And, you know, it helps underline the person's reserve, but also their sexual charisma and their mystery. And so I think that's how it gets cool and how, you know, holding your hand in your waistcoat, we would never do that today. But 300 years later, 200 years later, whatever, we're still walking around, strutting around, you know, look at Instagram at any fashion spread. We still hold our hands in our pockets thinking that we look, you know, sexy and reserved and cool. Mm. Interesting how much that is consistent over time when so much else changes. I know. Um, yeah. In fact, that I, I'd like to, now that we've kind of done a continuity, I have to ask about a change because this one I found quite entertaining, to be honest. Um, you've already given us some examples, right? Shakespeare had the moon in his pocket. People had pocket pistols. That sounds like a bad idea. Um, obviously, no one's walking around now, at least to my knowledge, with a moon in their pocket. Um, or even the supposition they might have one and hopefully not pocket pistols especially not really old-fashioned ones that don't work that well um so that's quite obviously changed can you talk us through sort of some of the big changes you found in terms of what people think should be in a pocket um needs to be in a pocket and why does this change when the hand cool bit maybe doesn't well I mean, I think pockets evolve and continue to evolve as clothing does um, and as objects do. So really, you you know, what we carry or what we think we need is just as revealing of the historic period, you know, as as other important things. Um, what we think we need changes with our age, with our situation. Um, so, I mean, one thing I can say for sure is that once pockets show up, um, you know, makers and tradesmen begin to miniaturize useful instruments um, with the notion that 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 stuff should be portable and that we should have access to objects. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson is called a walking calculator by his friends for all the small scale instruments he carried. So I think, I mean, I argue that really the suit is just as much an artifact of modernity as all these new cool tools, all the, you know, um, pocket sextants and writing instruments and mini, temp, you know, mini globes and things like that, um, that, that the suit, I don't know, it's like a mobile laboratory or a portable storehouse. Um, and we cannot anymore walk out the door without having some key objects. I mean, now we have phones and the phone contains myriad objects in one object. You know, you can use your phone as a flashlight, as a notebook, 
uh, as to see, check the weather, you know, to take notes. Um, but we still need all those things. So I'm not quite answering your question. I think um, some things come in and out of the historical record as we, you know, things that we think we need. Um, 1644 was the first time I found reference to it, a pocket-sized book. And that's um, the soldier's pocket Bible, you know, because a, a soldier might need to, um, well, let's see what the... The uh, soldier might need to, you know, get some comfort or exactly look and up not, some ethical right lug a whole book around. Um, so, I, so uh, I think it's just the you know I think oh I know I, I I quote Swift who at the very end of Gulliver's Travels when Gulliver is back home he just sort of you know and he's just been to a place where you don't need clothes at all. And he's back in England, not happy at all. And he says, oh, when I am home and dressed the way I should be, I carry on my body the workmanship of a hundred craftsmen. And I think we still do. I mean, I think we forget when we walk out the door. We think you feel so self-sufficient, you know, but actually that self-sufficiency sort of depends on the imagination of all sorts of people, generations of makers and, and, and people thinking about how to make life just a little bit easier um, with all these, you know, portable things. And now we have a load of them in our phones, but we yeah. still put them in pockets. Right. right. And, you know, that's why women cannot stand the fact that clothes do not have pockets willing to carry, you know. So exactly. This is the obvious thing to ask you about next, because I certainly did not go into this book thinking this. Um, it's not like women started asking for pockets as soon as mobile phones came out, right? Women started asking for pockets before that. When and why did women begin to ask for pockets? And what were the initial responses? Yeah, I mean, I love that. I mean, I think we think that the Twitter hashtags, like, give me pockets or give me death, you know, that the realization that pockets are sexist is somehow just an artifact of the last... 10, 20 years or social media or something. Um, but women have pointed out the sexual politics around pockets since they first started carrying handbags around 1800. So tie on pockets do not fit under those empire style fashions. Think of, you know, the Jane Austen fashions where the bust is the beginning of the skirt. Um, Barbara Berman and Ariane Fentineau point out that some pockets became narrower and women could still carry, um, you know, still wear a tie on pocket. But many, many women turn to the reticule at this point, which is the first fashion handbag. And that's when they start complaining. Um, the complaints really get vociferous around the 1880s um, and they coincide with the women's rights um, movements. Um, women call pockets their greatest lack. Um, and the Times, New York Times says, oh, we've seen women agitating with much earnestness in behalf of their right to carry and wear pockets. By 1899, the Times is also reporting, men's clothes are full of them. Women have but few, yet civilization demands pockets. So there's been this discussion for quite a while. Um, you know, it becomes a point of contention in the suffrage movement. The demand for the vote and demand for pockets are sometimes made together. And that was really uh, just really fun to explore this notion that it's not some recent realization, 
um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who who writes the novella uh, Yellow Wallpaper. Also, um, she was just obsessed with pockets at the turn of the century. And let's see, she publishes in the forerunner the um, her feminist utopia Herland in 1915, and that was running. It was serialized at the very same time that the dress of women, which was her sociological study, um, you know, when she published that. And I just love that, you know, in the utopia, she imagines this kind of unisex suit with pockets quilted all over it. Um, They were ingeniously arranged, she said, so that it could be convenient to the hand and the body they would be. They would strengthen the garment and also be decorative. Like she wanted it all. <laughs> she wanted pockets that could be integral, that were structural but also aesthetic. And her complaint was that if you didn't have them, um, you were not prepared to meet all emergencies. Um, I think Toad puts it best in Wind in the Willows. <laughs> um, Toad is cross-dressing to. This is a children's book, right? And now I'm going to. Uh, who's the who's the author of Wind in the Willows? Oh, Graham, right? Don't uh, remember, but I know the book. <laughs> okay, okay. So I think it's written first to be for um, as a um, not as a children's book. It's for adults. Um, anyway, Toad has uh, stolen a car, and he is put in jail. And as he's escaping, he he borrows um, the dress of a washerwoman. And so he doesn't have his pocket when he's trying to pay for his train ticket to escape. And he says, Ugh, without pockets, you are not equipped for the real contest. And I think, you know, that realization is early. And, you know, that's a century ago, more than a century ago. Yeah, no, very much predating Twitter or anything else like that. Um, in fact, if we go a little bit more towards the recent but still quite a ways away um you cite christian dior in the book for having a famous quip about pockets what did he say and what can we learn by maybe poking at his comment well he famously said that men have pockets to hold things women for decoration and i think of course the idea is that menswear prioritizes utility um, and women's wear has traditionally prioritized beauty. And that is, you know, in some cases really still true. I mean, I think that's the reason a lot of uh, evening wear, um, you know, doesn't have pockets. Um, and he was, you know, remarking on the fact that, you know, by the time we get to the 19th century, I mean, sorry, turn of the 20th century, this is the first time that, you know, tie-in pockets are just gone for good. And that pockets begin to appear in women's wear. Um, And they sort of sprout, you know, like flowers in the spring. Pockets are everywhere, uh, says, you know, Harper's Bazaar. Um, In 1916, Vogue said, oh, pockets, they're a new decorative element in design. And so patch pockets sort of show up in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So you know, in a way he's right. They do, when they show up in modern women's dress, they are decorative. Um, but I think he really missed how much menswear could be, pockets could be really decorative. Um, 
And that I think is the case, especially after World War II, where you have really obvious pocketing that shows up in leisure wear that is borrowing from both the military and sportswear. And it's as though, especially after World War II, as dress is becoming you know, less uptight, um, pockets sort of, I don't know, they have this whole host of appealing association. I mean, especially from the military, they suggest this kind of competence and, you know, daring do. And I'm referencing World War II because I'm thinking of those um, American, especially um, uniforms that had these really big bellows pockets all over. So it's not just the sort of two over two um, sort of safari-like pockets that show up by the late 19th century, but also pockets, cargo pockets, cargo pockets in the pants that carry, you know, grenades and things like that. So these uniforms were slouchy and they, you know, World War II was this mobile war, was not like the World War I trench warfare. Um, and during tests of these uniforms, um, military, you know, designers said, look, they can fight out of their pants and jacket pockets. Anyway, so I think, you know, like the early leisure wear is sort of borrowing these visible patch pockets to suggest a kind of um, what Esquire called a rugged masculinity. Um, and, you know, I think Dior sort of missed that, missed how much pockets might be meaningful for, or decorative really for men. And I think he, also missed that the decorative can actually have meaning. I mean, he ignored the work of the absolutely famous, his famous women colleagues um, like Scaparelli, who made incredibly inventive pockets that were decorative, but that also, um, uh, you know, really made some very interesting social points. I mean, she, for example, had this 1937 suit. It was called the desk drawer suit. And she had these trompe pockets that looked like drawers that you would pull out of a chest of drawers. I mean, so part of the joke is this is not a chest of drawers. You know, this is the chest on my body, you know, and she had pull tabs suggestively, suggestively over the nipples and belly. So she was making that sort of joke. But I think she was also, you know, some of those pockets were actually working pockets and she um, let the wearer, only the wearer knew which was the real pocket. And I think she was just reflecting on how important um, hiding places are for anyone. And that, you know, as women are entering the working world and wearing these new sort of suits that clearly reference menswear suits, but are made for women, um, they too are going to need things like pockets um, and privacy and the ability to carry all sorts of things. So I get mad at Dior when he, <laughs> but maybe he couldn't have foreseen how decorative menswear pockets got, would get, you know, he dies in 1957 um, but he sure should have recognized uh, his compatriot Scaparelli. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, what role then do pockets play in high fashion now? Well, designers love pockets, um, but they're a disparate bunch. 
And I think at times they've concentrated on their artistic vision and not always on the wearer. So just because people realize that women might want pockets doesn't mean that designers have always, you know, gratified them. And I think really in that 20th century moment when pockets start to appear in women's wear, you know, um, they no sooner come into use than they come into play for designers. And designers use them for all sorts of their imaginative projects. Um, they've designers have crafted pockets into all sorts of shapes. Um, some are some are whimsical. Sometimes they mimic other things. So tennis nets and the bureau drawers I just mentioned of Scaparelli, but also she made famously these um, pockets that look looked like really hot pink, you know, lips um, right at the hip. Um, some have looked like scattered playing cards. Um, you know, others are really serious and look aggressively functional and are zippered and have lots of hardware. Um, and they suggest that the wearer really means business. But jokes and double entendres abound with pockets. Um, you know, some designers reflect on pockets' intimate placement. And they sort of use pockets to highlight the contour at the breast or the hip even the buttock. Um, in 1993, Jean-Paul Gaultier famously sort of puts these freestanding cargo pockets right at the seat at your bum, which bounced as the wearer walked. Um, and the more you stuff those pockets, the more they bounced. You know, so clearly there's lots of playfulness there and sort of this, you know, reflections on the body. Um, you know, so whether they're obtrusive or whether they're designed to be unobtrusive, I think, um, um, designers certainly have just, you know, it's, it's a, it's something in their expressive toolkit. It's something really to have fun with sometimes. I can, I mean, just those images are fabulous, um, even just describing them. And I'm sure there's probably people Googling them as you talk to get a sense of this playfulness. As a penultimate question, um, I'd love to sort of surface something we've been hinting at a little bit, right? The idea that pockets are necessary to be prepared for the outside world um, versus the kind of playfulness of it, the mysteriousness, the cool. We often, I think, especially today, frame pockets as being about women not having them, as being an issue around gender, around patriarchy. And I think you've clearly proven to us that that's still very much a relevant lens. But what happens if we maybe look at an additional lens or a different lens for this debate as being between people who worry a lot versus people who are maybe especially optimistic? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was at a certain point, I thought, well, you know, now I, I was thinking about specifically sort of modernist dress, you know, the, the really simple, minimalist, streamlined dress when often, and I'm thinking about women's wear, there are very few pockets at all. Um, you know, this is dress that is thought to mimic smooth machined surfaces. So you think of, you know, space age sort of dress. Um, and the idea is that these garments proclaim their alliance with, you know, progress and the future. Um, they look just like machines in a way. And, you know, rather than necessarily misogyny, um, I think sometimes this disavowal of pockets, this, you know, this hope to get something completely smooth and clean um, can be traced to, you know, futuristic fashion to the folks who really hoped that maybe the future, in the future, we could um, 
abolish this need for things, abolish encumbrance. And I sort of traced it as far as I could trace was back to, um, you know, H.G. Wells's utopian fictions. Um, and he paid a lot of attention to dress and in a way really, you know, with his 1936 um, film, Things to Come, um, it's not his film, but, you know, it's based on his book, The Shape of Things to Come. He really set the stage for futuristic fashion. Um, and he specifically imagines worlds where we would not need pockets. Um, you know, the idea is if you could design the environment well enough, you could take care of everybody's needs. Uh, he hated, for example, um, these sort of alternate depictions of the future. And he was thinking, say, of the comics that are just coming out at this point. And there you had all these, you know, guys usually um, suited up. He said they are rigged up like telephone poles. Um, you know, these folks that we imagine in the future, oh, they're like padded lunatics or armored gladiators. He did not like the idea that that this, it's sort of the... Um, this notion that you would have to sort of protect yourself and be prepared for any contingency. So he's like, no, we're going to have freer and simpler dress. It's going to be sort of free floating and like, you know, we're not going to be stuffed up. Um, so I think that's the, or that's, that's, that's where I arrived. Um, that these sort of dreams have existed and that really continues today. I mean, I think, the recent field of wearables, which is the sort of science fiction meets fashion synergy, imagines too that we won't have to be encumbered. We won't have to carry a key or uh, your money, right? Everything is, all our tools will be embedded in our clothing. Um, so recently, for example, Levi's worked with Google to produce a smart jean jacket, and that was called a commuter trucker jacket. And the idea is you could weave conductive thread yarn into your sleeve and program the sleeve to recognize various hand gestures. So the idea is you could be biking to work and you could check your text messages without having, or you know, do something on your phone without having to take your phone out of your pocket. So you can be on your bike, touch your sleeve, activate your phone. So this was awarded all sorts of, um, I don't know, Cooper Hewitt gave it a major design award in 2019. Um, and so I think, you know, in other words, there's this notion that we're just not going to need to be burdened with stuff anymore. Um, so I, I don't know if it's likely. I think people like pockets too much. I think the mm -hmm. expression, oh, it's got pockets. Have you ever... Uh -huh. I'm assuming you have had that expression. Or oh maybe, my goodness. Maybe so Miranda, you don't buy skirts or dresses or clothes without pockets, right? That's like, true. I don't. But yeah. I still, whenever I then get compliments on the outfit, if the person who's complimented me is a woman, I will go, thank you. Also, it has pockets. Exactly. And okay. everyone's very excited. Right. And I think that's I think that's one reason, you know, no matter what the futurists say, I don't think we're gonna give them up very soon. Um, I don't think we're ready to delegate the control of our tools to others. You know, it's the, the, now the, this idea that stuff could be embedded with, um, you know, that we could transmit wirelessly all this stuff. Yeah. Surveillance becomes an issue. 
Um, and I think this aspiration that we could move through the world seamlessly really undervalues the degree to which a lucky charm in a pocket, you know, can sustain momentum. We're terrible hoarders, humans. We carry all sorts of junk, right? Not everything is actually useful. I mean, if you put your hands in your pockets now, there might be old receipts and I don't know, some sticky gum you forgot. And um, I don't know, all sorts of, you know, the round stone you discovered in a pile of a perfectly round stone you discovered in a pile at the beach and, and, and kept, and it reminds you of a time or place. Um, I think for all those reasons, um, pockets will stick around. Designers love them. We love them. Um, no matter how much perhaps folks are still imagining this future where we will have what we need. Yeah. Without pockets. Um, I mean, why not have both, right? Why not have pockets and cool tech? We shall see. Uh, that remains very much in the future, uh, but that's actually the theme of my final question. Uh, this book is obviously, thankfully, available. People can go get it, which means it's off your desk. Is there anything you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about pockets you'd like to preview? Well, I I cannot tell you how much fun I had with this project. It just it just like it kept exploding, you know, and pockets just kept showing up everywhere. And I think that happens to researchers when they discover that they're on the hunt, and suddenly, you know, it seems like this whole new lens. I'm very worried. I do not want to become the pocket lady. This is what. Uh, this is what an advisor said to me when I first proposed this um, as a dissertation. Oh, you're going to be the pocket lady. <laughs> so I am looking forward to maybe um, the next project, which I can't say what it will be next yet. Um, but I hope it doesn't have to have 500 years of history. That was that was long. I had to tiptoe in disciplines that are not my own and um, stick to my guns, you know, uh, and so I do hope that I will continue to write about objects, but I, I, I'm not quite sure yet what, but I hope it's a little more limited range, perhaps. <laughs> fair it, enough. It's quite so entangled with all sorts of so many things. Mm. Well, fair enough, but we're very glad to have this book, again, titled Pockets, An Intimate History of How We Keep Things Close, published in 2023. Hannah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, so lovely. Thank you for reaching out. I'm so happy to be here.